Hey guys, welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel here on YouTube, the place where we help believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we're going to do that once again via a sermon review. And you may ask, if you're new here, what is a sermon review? Well, each week we sit down and we look at a variety of different sermons that you guys send in or that I just find and we work through them, looking at three specific things. The first is do they read the text? I know that sounds like a simple thing, but oftentimes it doesn't happen. Do they read the text? The second one is, do they exegete the text using context and culture, bringing out the reality that is there and applying application for the believer? And lastly, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the hope that can be found in him through the reconciliation through him to the Father. Do we hear that? Today, we're going to be doing just that with a sermon I found on Raphael Warnock. Um, now, one thing that I do have to say, the sermon that we're going to be looking at today, as always, you will be able to find down in the description below, but I am going to have to play it at 1.25 speed. My understanding is that that will help uh, copyright issues, and apparently we may have some copyright issues because uh, this is actually from The Hill, uh, which is like uh, like um, I think it's like a government YouTube, like it's a it's a news outlet that covers government things. It's their YouTube channel. I couldn't find this sermon on the his his church's YouTube page. In fact, when I typed in his name, this is the one that came up first. So I'm just using this one. Long story short. Also, if you're looking for something to help you work through sermons such as this one or any other sermon you see down below in the comments or in the description, rather, you will see a link for a free PDF guide that you can do. You can print it off or you can do what I do and, you know, put it on your tablet and you can mark it up that way. That will be, again, in the links in the description below. There's a lot of links down there. You should check those out. Just, just look at them. So let's go ahead and hop into this sermon now. Um, what am I? Yeah. Oops, sorry. Okay, here we go. I don't... I, ah, we're going crazy. Okay, so... <laughs> This is a professional operation I got running over here, as you can tell. So if you're in the audio version of my cameras, I just I pushed the wrong button. So here we go. Let's go ahead and hop in. This sermon is 36 minutes long, so I want to make sure we can get through it efficiently and effectively. Let's go ahead and hop into it and see where he goes with this. Uh, where are we at? A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, the 11th chapter. As always, <laughs> I'm sorry to cut in so shortly. As always, we want to make sure we go to that passage and read it along with him. We cover this all the time in these sermon reviews. You know, how do they start this sermon? Do they tell a story? Do they get right into the text? This is actually my preferred method, by the way, getting right into the text. I appreciate that. He's going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. So if we can, let's make sure we turn there and follow along with him. The reading begins with the seventh verse. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 7, as they went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft clothes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. We shine the sermonic spotlight on that 12th verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. I want to talk to you about God's victory over violence. Now, he makes a point here in these verses that he read and his title, God's Victory Over Violence, to shine a specific light on verse um, 12. The from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence take and the violent take it by force. This is going to play a predominant role in his sermon. And we'll talk a little bit more about this verse uh, as we get you know further into his actual sermon as he sort of unpacks it. But as pastors, right? So if there is a specific thing we want to zoom in on, what he just did isn't a bad idea. Like it's in regards to saying, okay, this, we read these sets of verses and this verse in particular is maybe what we're going to zoom into to draw out a larger point. Again, ideally using context and culture to be the guide in, in doing that well. So let's see where he takes it from here with the title being God's victory over violence. God's victory over violence with the coming of John the Baptist on the scene. There was this sense that something new and something special was emerging in the world. The sense that God was up to something, that something was happening, something was afoot in the atmosphere. This was no ordinary time. It was a time of transition, a time of inflection. It was a turning point. Read this gospel passage and know that this was no ordinary time, and John is no ordinary man. He was a preacher to be sure, but a different kind of preacher. A truth-telling troublemaker was he. A penetrating prophet who had a knack for getting under the skin of those in power. John the Baptist, or lest we Baptists be confused and think that this is some denominational distinction, John the Baptizer uh, stirred up the status quo. He created a lot of trouble. And he created a lot of trouble for himself in the process. And telling the truth will get you in trouble. And yet there can be no transformation without truth. We cannot and we will not change until we confront or are confronted by the sickness of our own situation. That applies to individuals. That applies to institutions. That applies to nations. You can never get better until you have an actual diagnosis. You can never improve. 
One thing I want to point out really quick, and again, this goes into anybody you listen to, like literally anyone, is operating out of a particular worldview. Um, you can tell. So why I say that is he's talking about individuals have issues, institutions have issues, uh, countries have issues. Um, now, again, I totally could be wrong about this, but in the history of what I've studied, especially within the intertestamental time into the New Testament we're at here, there's not really a concept of that. Um, outside of the Jewish concept of, you know, God punishing the nation for the nation's sin. So even if you're part of that nation and you didn't maybe participate, you're still, for example, being, you know, exiled off to Babylon and all that sort of thing. So there is this understanding of like this personal sin, obviously, set up Old Testament, you know, there's this sin that you commit and then the priests go in, do the sacrificial process, and then, you know, the whole nation or body is cleansed from that. Now, on the other side of the cross, this obviously changes quite a bit in regards to Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, and the acceptance and following of him isn't like a, a, a national or a people group thing. It's a very individualistic idea in regards to how that, that process is through. But it's interesting that, so we're going to see that a lot of what he says past this really operates out of this concept of, of personal, uh, institutional and in nation sort of this sort of concept of that and he'll break that down as we go through prove until you come to terms with the fact that you have some malady that you have some sickness that you have something that is broken and that is the nature of the human condition we all have some brokenness we all have some blind spots we all have some maladies we all wrestle through some form of pathology and woe to those who are not honest about their sickness now, one of the interesting things here is he doesn't mention sin. Like, that is one of the interesting things that comes from that. Like, I, he never in this whole sermon, like, he'll mention brokenness, he'll mention blind spots, but it's very Joel Olstein-esque in the regards of, like, it's, a, it's an issue, but it's not like sin. It's not, um, like, it's not something that is a devastation and a separation from your creator. It's a brokenness, a blind spot, a problem. Um, and I, personally, I think that's if you leave that out, you're almost leaving that out purposefully um, as far as I'm concerned. About their pre-existing condition, John was a truth-telling troublemaker. He was a, a kind of spiritual doctor who mastered the art of diagnosis and uh, he uh, revealed certain truths so that you could be set free. Jesus said that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's why John insisted on telling the truth to Herod. He told Herod the truth about his personal ethics, about his raggedy situation. He said, you ought not have your brother's wife. And he told Herod the truth about the empire, that it was in the process of crumbling because of its broken and distorted value system. He was trying. Okay, so really quick, this is why I just want to bring this. I know I've interrupted a lot up to this point, but here's the here's the thing. This is why understanding a history of um, the 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 culture that is happening within the New Testament is so important. Now, eventually, that's true. Forty years from this point, well, more than forty years from this point, just a little over forty years, right? Yeah, give or take. Um, you know, Jerusalem will fall. The temple will be destroyed, but. There's not a lot of crumbling happening right now within the uh, the structure of the New Testament. In fact, if you look at the history 
uh, from from the from the intertestamental time up till the destruction of the temple. The, actually, the times of the gospel are some of the most stable times within the Roman Empire in regards to Rome and Jerusalem. Um, so that's the, it's not on the edge of crumbling. Now, there's a, a whole history that we cannot get into right now in regards to Herod and Herod taking his brother's wife and the whole thing that happened there. I will link that in the description below. You've probably heard me talk about Bruce Gore before. Uh, Bruce Gore has an entire video from a book he wrote in regards to walking through the Herods and uh, just how widespread the Herods were within this this sort of place within the Roman Empire, this J Jerusalem and how they ruled and whatnot. It's incredibly interesting. The point being that... Um, one, the, the empire is not about to collapse. This is actually a very stable time uh, under Octavius uh, or Augustus. And then you have Herod, which the Herods, I mean, rule from, I mean, before the gospel start and way up into Acts as well, just different Herods, uh, but they're all related. And so, yes, John does speak to Herod in regards to, you know, his, his, uh, his sin and what he should not be doing. But it's not even that that eventually gets him killed. And we'll talk about that when, when Warnock talks about it. But we have to understand all of that to say this. You need to have an understanding historically of the context in which the New Testament is happening so that when you read the New Testament and things like this come up, you understand the reality of what's kind of going on around it. Yes, the empire and uh, you know Jerusalem and Rome and all of that will eventually come to blows, have previously, in fact, come to blows. But this point in history within the New Testament, all of Jesus' ministry, in fact, is a very peaceful time relative to the rest of it in what's going on. And the whole Herod situation, again, is far more that we can get into, but it's not he's not presenting it quite accurately in what's actually happening here. Yes, John is calling out sin in Herod's life, and that is what will get him arrested. That is not what eventually gets him killed, though. But again, you have to read, understand the context and read the rest of the uh, narrative within the scriptures to get there. So just know the history to set Herod free and he was trying to speak truth to power on behalf of the God who loves us into freedom and frees us into loving. But Herod wasn't trying to hear it. He had bought into the lies about the empire. He had bought into the lies about his own power. He had bought into the lies about his own sense of self-importance. He had bought into the lies about himself so that by the time we bump into John the baptizer, this truth-telling troublemaker, this transformational prophet was already an inmate in Herod's prison industrial complex. He is a brother in jail there because he is violently resisted but the reverberations of his ministry still resound with meaning and power throughout. My question is, how is he violently resisted, right? So Warnock is making a comparison that most pastors make. I just want to draw this out. What you're going to hear in this whole sermon is not really a whole lot different than what you hear in a lot of sermons that we've covered. Like there's this, this idea of like, well, here's what's presented in scripture. And then here's my comparative to what's happening right now. And then so Warnock is saying, well, John is in prison in the industrial complex, which is not at all how it was set up in Rome. And then he's talking about, you know, he's setting up a situation 
which isn't factual according to the Gospels here. He was not violently resisting the empire. He was calling out sin in Herod's life. Herod, because of this, locks him up because Herod is, again, watch that video from Bruce Gore. It's very informative. Herod was very arrogant, but this is not what eventually gets John killed. And it wasn't some sort of violence that John did um, that got him in prison. Throughout the whole land. John the Baptist, by the time we bump into him in this text, is already in jail. He has been caged, but the truth of his gospel cannot be caged. It is still reverberating, still resounding with power throughout the land. He was not a part of the in crowd, yet the crowd was drawn to him. Herod had arrested him, yet the truth of his ministry had arrested them. Everybody was talking about John the Baptist, even Jesus is talking about John. And in this text, Jesus asked them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Why did you beat a path to John's door? What was it about his aura? What was it about him that compelled you to make a way to see the prophet? He says, did you go all the way out to the wilderness to see a So real quick, context here is important. This is why I tell you to open the Bibles whenever somebody reads. Because he's specifically zooming in on verses 7 through 15. When you, if you were to just go up and start it in chapter 11, it says this. Then when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who shall come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. So there's this context of, like, there are people that are wondering, is, well, John specifically, but he sends his disciples to ask Jesus. Jesus clarifies, because again, what we're going to talk about a little bit here as we get into this sermon is that their expectation of what the Christ was going to look like versus what Jesus actually does is it's a flipped on its head. Um, and John's confused <laughs> and John's not sure. Like, are you the one? I thought you were the one. And Jesus, you know, tells his disciples what to say. And then he goes back and Jesus starts speaking to the crowds because John's baptism. And I think I've got this uploaded. If I do, I'll link it in the description below. Baptism as John was doing, it was a baptism of repentance and it's very closely tied to the type of baptism that they were used to within Judaism already, though there is a slight difference as far as how John was doing it and what it looked like and what he was calling them to. But you cannot separate what John was doing in his message and his his like what he was preparing from the act of baptism and the history of baptism and how they understood cleansing uh, from one's sin. And so those are very intricately connected. All that to say, the context from verses 1 through 6 are important to understand 7 through 15 in regards to what we've already heard John sending his disciples to do, and now Jesus teaching the people um, about, like, so why did you come to see John then? After he's already told John's disciples, yeah, yeah, uh, in verses 4 through 6, go and tell John what you have heard and see the blind. So he, he recites scripture to them to say, yes, essentially, I am the one. You read shaken by the wind what did you go way out there to see did you go to see someone dressed in fine robes no you could have seen that in the city you could have seen that in the palace but you went out of your way into the wilderness to see a prophet not a reed shaken by the wind which by the way 
in the inscription on Herod's money, there is the picture, the inscription of uh, a reed blowing in the wind. You, you didn't go out there, Jesus is saying, to see somebody. Who now that is interesting. I don't, I haven't looked into that. So there may be some connection to that um, for sure. I don't know. So that being noted, there may very well be connection with G what Jesus is saying with, with the inscription on the coin that they would have known about. Um, and that, if, if that's accurate, that is incredibly culturally relevant to the connection Jesus is making in regards to who you're looking for. Who's already bought. You didn't go out there to see somebody who's already bossed. You didn't go out there to see somebody who's already owned by the wealthy and the well-connected. No, you made your way into the wilderness because you wanted to see what a free person looked like. You went out to the wilderness to see and to hear from a prophet. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can the preacher preach except he or she is sent? You left the beaten path because you wanted to hear from a prophet. God's truth compelled you to come because you know in your heart of hearts that God is up to something in the world. Now, really quick, there was an expectation for the Messiah. Um, in fact, it's it was an ongoing expectation. The closest that they had probably had up to this point was the Maccabean revolt in which at least, you know, the Maccabeans um, did not declare to be the coming Messiah. And uh, according to my reading, there were very few people that would have even made that connection. Um, there are definitely people after Jesus' time that they connect to the Messiah, but the Messiah was always connected to, and the reason they would have even connected it to the Maccabean revolt is that the Messiah was always thought to be someone that would come rise up over whoever was controlling them and whoever was over them and then take over and then rule like David ruled. And under the Maccabean revolt, after that, they did have a long number of years in which they, Jerusalem, uh, Israel was an independent, you know, region and then Rome comes in, takes over, and then the people that are there, even during Jesus' day, uh, have some sort of, an, uh, some of them would have remembered that if they were very old, but they would have at least had a very recent history, historical understanding that they were once free, and then Rome had taken them over. It's a very interesting story how that happened, actually. But now they're still looking for that Messiah, right? So there is this expectation. So the people coming out to John, and again, I'm only telling you this because it's very important to the context versus what he's saying here, is that they're coming out to John because they're expecting this Messiah to come, but they're coming to have a baptism of repentance so that they, when this Messiah comes, they're ready, essentially. Like they've cleansed their hearts. They have cleansed their bodies. They, they, in the anticipation of this coming Messiah. And I drop by this day to tell you that in spite of all that you are seeing, in spite of all that they are saying, our God is up to something. And every now and then God gives us a glimpse of God's glory. God allows us to see that the kingdom of heaven, imbued with love and justice, is being revealed. God has not abandoned us to our own devices. God has not left us as some abandoned orphans on the doorstep of eternity. We have cosmic companionship. We have a friend in Jesus. We have a God who is working out God's purposes, even in the messiness of human history. A revolution is happening. The poor are hearing good news. The blind are receiving their sight. Liberty is coming to the captives. Freedom is on the way. The kingdom of God is here and it is at hand. That's the good news.
God is up to something. You look closely, there are glimpses of the glory of God, things that we've never seen before happening. That's the good news. Here is the bad news. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is at hand. The bad news is this. It suffers violence. And the violent are trying to take the kingdom by force. The violent now, I only tell you this because I've seen this sermon through once. It's very interesting, and this is what you have to do with every pastor and every sermon that you hear. You have to ask, okay, so they've read the text. Have they then, the second thing we look for, have they exegetically worked through the text, bringing out culture and context for application? Now, we have to be very careful that we understand what that, what that looks like. Taking what is being said here and then directly applying it on top of what was happening in our current culture is not how Scripture is meant to be read. Um, there are obviously applications and truths to be drawn from it, um, but we see this often, Stephen Furtick comes to mind, in which like reading the Scripture directly onto your situation, in which that's not how, especially within a historical kind of a narrative situation, that's supposed to be done. Um, so just keep in mind that he, he keeps talking about, you know, we're seeing that the, the, well, this is the, he didn't read that, but he's quoting from verses four through seven, you know, the blind, uh, will receive their sight. The lame will walk, you know, all of this that he's referencing. And then he connects that also seeing the kingdom taken by violence. Now, this kingdom that we're talking about verse 12 is specifically, let's read that, from the, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. We have to be very careful about that, that direct reference, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence from the days of John until now. We'll get into what that means a little bit, but I want him to unpack what he's talking about as we work through this. ...are trying to take what God intends for all of God's children by force. That's the tension in this text. That's the paradox in this text. That's the irony in this text. And that is the irony, the paradox, the tension in our world. God is working out God's purposes. It is God's dream for the world that all of us would experience freedom, that all of God's children will be fed, that all of God's children will be educated, that all of God's children will have access to life and that more abundantly. That is God's dream for all of God's children. But the violent are trying to take the kingdom by force. Whoever would have thought that in the state of Georgia, we would see the people of Georgia. So again, this is a direct connection that he's reading out of the text, or I guess he's reading current events into the text rather. So he's eisegeting it because he's about to talk about modern day elections and who got elected as being representative of what the text is talking about rise up and send an african-american man so uh what you're going to see there's a number of different uh overlays that pop up here that i think that the uh the 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 hill which is where this video comes from has actually inserted onto here i don't think these are what the original sermon would have had on them i think the hill which is the the place where this video is coming from has inserted these onto it so if you're watching the video version you're going to see a number of these this is the first one but i don't think these were originally there grew up in public housing the pastor of this ebenezer baptist church where dr king preached and a jewish young man the son of an immigrant to the United States Senate. 
Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If you look at that, it doesn't matter about your politics and your ideology. If you look with an honest eye at the history of this country and see this moment, you must know that this is a glimpse of God's vision of a more inclusive humanity that embraces all of God's children. And I'm, I'm just grateful to be a part of this. So here's the thing. We can. This isn't the sermon we're going to talk about or the video we're going to talk about, quote, 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 unquote, all of God's children, because there's a lot that needs to be worked out of that subject in regards to everyone having the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. And so that means, you know, you have value, you, you're valuable, you have worth, all of that versus the children of God, which are those that are gods in regards to have been adopted, have been adopted into the family of God via Jesus Christ. There's a lot of difference. We won't get into a ton of that. All of that to say is like, what does this have to do with the actual text we read? We run into this all the time, not just in this wall, this sermon from Warnock, but in a lot of texts where people will read a text and then read current situations onto it. Now, for sure, Jesus is talking about situations that are happening in his day, right? So when he talks about from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. There's a couple ways you could read this. Um, the, the, probably the, the most culturally understandable way is going to be that there have been a lots of people, especially since John the Baptist has been preaching about this kingdom of heaven that have opposed it and don't want it. Um, so them taking the violent will take it by force seems to indicate this idea of the opposition to this kingdom of heaven that John is proclaiming and the violence that's been toward John uh, in regards to him being put in prison, the violence we will see, you know, toward Jesus. And then obviously after his resurrection, uh, the violence toward the early church. The point is that you can't take what's happening here and then be like, oh yeah, happening. it's happening in our day and we're going to read it back onto the text. There's a lot that can be drawn out of this for application in regards to how people respond to the message of the kingdom of heaven. But what does that have to do with modern day elections? It, it doesn't. But we're reading back on to it um, an inclusiveness um, that we should talk about, but isn't here in this text. I'm just grateful. Because I just want to serve. I just want to be a vessel. I just want to be an instrument. I just want to be a prism of God's glory so that God's glory might shine through me. And that's what you should want for your own life. That God's glory might shine, shine through your gifts, through your opportunities to share and to serve. And I want to say to anybody who's struggling through this pandemic, look, look at my story and let it give you hope. Somebody who's wondering if life is worth living, if your life is worth living, know that, that there is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. When you consider the history of this country, it's a shining moment. As I've said over the last few weeks, as a teenager, growing up in Waycross, Georgia, my mom used to pick somebody else's cotton, but the other day she went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. That's a glimpse of God's glory, a glimpse of God's justice, the ark being bent a little bit closer to justice in the world. And it is here and at hand, the emergence of human possibility and God's dream that embraces all of us. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is here, but it suffers violence. And we witness that tension in such a powerful and 
such a tragic way here in the wee hours, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Okay, so for those of you that are just have the audio version, what you're what's on the screen currently right now is a video of him uh, when they found out that he won um, his his Senate seat. That's the audio Georgia you're hearing. had elected its first black senator and its first Jewish senator. And then, as we were basking in the glory of all that that represented, it seemed like we could only have a few hours to celebrate, just as we were trying to put on our celebration shoes. The ugly side of our story. And then, again, if you're just listening and you're not watching, there's uh, January 6th um, videos being on the screen right now. Our great and grand American story began to emerge as we saw the crude and the angry and the disrespectful and the violent break their way into the people's house. Some carrying Confederate flags, signs and symbols of an old world order passing away. And I asked myself, Lord, why could we not just have a few hours to pass in the glory of what God is doing? Here it is. The old world order is surely passing away. And those on the underside of history are rising to take their place as equal members in the human family. That's what God intends for all of us. And if you're looking at it right, one, one people, one person's emergence ought not be a threat to your sense of your own somebodyness of one blood. God has made all nations to dwell upon the face of the earth that we might seek after God. And yet God is not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. All right, so really quick, he's quoting Paul there when he, Paul is uh, in Acts talking on uh, Mars Hill. Um, so the interesting thing here that, like, whether it be the Hill interjecting these images to then sort of paint the picture of what Warnock is saying, which I think is basically what's happening. Like, I, he, he, he was very clear about him winning the race and then the January 6th thing happening. And there's a lot like that can be talked about for sure about all of that. We're not talking about any of that right now. Unless, of course, it has to do with what the scripture that he's reading is talking about. I mean, Jesus' words specifically here in verses 7 through 15 is that he's talking to the crowd about why they came out to see John. John's baptism was one of repentance. Uh, it was one of preparing the way for this Messiah, which we see beforehand. John's a little confused about like, is are you the one? Even though he literally was there when uh, the dove came down. But the idea is that he's John is not seeing Jesus operate in a way that he thought the Messiah was going to operate. Uh, all the way up until this point, uh, and Jesus actually really, he tries to, to correct people's thinking the entire ministry that their, their understanding of this Messiah was that he was going to come in a very kingly way in a, in a way that was going to overthrow the powers that were over the Jewish people. And he's not doing that. And it's very confusing for them. Now, that being said, Warnock seems to in this sermon is trying to imply like his election is a sign of like God's what he was talking about as far as the the blind seeing the lame will walk like miracles sort of happening and then he then connects the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and he's somehow weirdly drawing that line between that and January 6th um, with really the very thin thread of some sort of violence and people thinking that violent force is going to overtake things now I'm sure he has a, an understanding of, of biblical history, 
especially New Testament history. And if you do, you're going to know that there are, I mean, time and time again, history repeats itself. Like before the New Testament happens, we have, again, the Maccabean Revolt, which is uh, basically those that were... Um, were not happy with the Hellenization that they were seeing, as well as the Romans' uh, insistence on, um, well, at the Maccabean Revolt, it wasn't the Romans, it was the Syrians, but the Syrians' insistence upon, um, you know, basically making the Jews worship in a way that, you know, Yahweh had told them not to do as far as sacrificing pigs on the altar and things like that. And then they, they rise up and they say, we're not going to do that. And then they, you know, they, they overthrow um, the Maccabeans slowly gain enough forces to overthrow them and they become their own nation for a while until Rome comes in. And then eventually again, 67 to 70 AD, we see the same sort of thing happening where two factions sort of separate and then one, the zealots rise up and they try to defeat Rome and Rome crushes them. And so we see this over and over again, like factioning happens rinse and repeat throughout history. There will be times where there will be majority of moderates with some fringe elements. And then again, you can see it throughout history over and over again, where you'll then have the, you know, the middle people will kind of be whittled down and you'll have two factions on the side that will eventually fight each other or fight someone else. And then that whole process will start over again. So the fact that he's reading modern day American politics onto what is happening here. Is problematic. It's in fact, it just it, when I listened to this the first time, I thought this sounds like Christian nationalism. <laughs> this sounds like this idea that he's like, he's like God is doing a thing where he's putting people in power so that they can then you know spread uh, spread God's good news. It's just, it's just funny that it's uh, you just see this happening over and over again. People using God's name in a way that in the scriptures we don't see God directing us to do. Um, but whatever. So he's reading January 6th into the scriptures. He's reading his election into the scriptures. This is not at all what Jesus is trying to point to. In fact, if we go on uh, past verse 15, you're going to see a whole bunch of, uh, again, very important context to what Jesus is saying here within these scriptures. Um, anyway, I've talked long enough. We need to let him keep going because we're only 18 minutes into this, this actual sermon and we've got quite a bit of time left. Because the old order is slipping away, sometimes it responds violently and desperately. You cut the head off of a snake. It shakes and moves violently, not because it is living, but because it is dying. Power concedes nothing without a demand. So there is both victory in this moment and there is violence in this moment. There is fantastic opportunity and fierce opposition and it reminds us that there is still a whole lot of work to do. And as we consider what happened, the ugliness of it all, I want us to recognize that we didn't see in that moment the emergence of violence, I want you to see the ways in which the violence is already there because there's more than one way to be violent. You don't have to use bombs and bullets to be violent. There is the violence of prejudice and fear. Your words can be violent. So really quick, one thing I want to point out is that he's going to work through this 
I I think as you watch this, you understand this, but this is not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, within this concept uh, of violence at all within the, the, you know, this first century, the idea of words being violence um, is, is just odd. Like it's not a thing. <laughs> so these are all modern concepts that we're now reading back onto verse 12. We've left verse 12 a long time ago. We're not even dealing, he's not even dealing with the context or the culture in which Jesus is in, in which he's speaking of. We have now totally read ourselves onto the text and now we're applying modern day definitions of things to the text. Violence of prejudice and fear, we saw it in Charlottesville. How we've seen it over the last four years. We've seen it in the current occupant of the... Okay, now he, uh, now not him, but I think probably the Hill again, is. In, they have a video of Donald Trump on top of uh, the sermon. So you're going to hear a little bit of that audio probably. Oval Office who told folks to stand back and stand by. It is a kind of violence that dehumanizes all of us. And, and we saw it. And we saw it in the paradox between the response between those who were clearly insurrectionists. They were not protesters, they were rioters tearing up the people's house and they were handled with a kind of kid gloves with humanity. One could not help but juxtapose that to the response to those who were responding this summer to the deaths of George Floyd and, and the death of Breonna Taylor, those who rose up in peaceful, non-violent struggle and were met with brute force. Those who were just there outside of the White House and were met with brute force so that the occupant of the White House might. Again, you're having uh, pictures of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and then Donald Trump walking in front of the church with the Bible. That's all being shown on screen right now. March down a sidewalk, stand in front of a church, and hold the Bible upside down. That is its own kind of violence that injures the human spirit cries out, calls on all of us to recognize our common humanity. Over the last year, we've been dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic. It is tragic, but it is also instructive because all of a sudden we're dealing with a deadly airborne disease. My neighbor coughs, and if my neighbor coughs, that person might be sick, but I'm potentially imperiled by the cough of my neighbor that doesn't make my neighbor my enemy. That means that our destiny is tied together. I'm trying to say to you that we are as close together in our humanity as a cough. We are all we've got. We have to resist the violence of prejudice and fear and bigotry. So here's the thing. There are passages, like I just want to really pound this point home. There are passages that we can go through in the Gospels and the New Testament that definitely talk about uh, the Christian's way, uh, the, the way Christ commands his followers to live. Um, and we have a historical examples time and time again, where they have like followers, people that claim to be followers of Christ haven't done that well. Right. So it's not that like, I mean, you can point those out as much as you want. The point is what we do see in scripture is the commandment of how to live. Now, that being said, 
he's not making that distinction that like Christ commands us to live a certain way. It's this assumed moral morality that people have. But secondly, this has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about in regards to verse 12, when he says, from the days from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violent and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you were willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Um, he who has ears, let him hear. And then he goes on, but who? Uh, but what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, and he keeps going on. The idea is that Jesus is making a direct connection to the audience he's talking about in ways that they would understand. Now, does this have implications for us? It does. But by and large, this is really a narrative for us to understand and see how the ministry of Jesus is progressing, how people saw him, and what Jesus sees and understands as something that is happening that the people that he's talking to are totally missing. Um, the violence that he's talking about specifically, best interpreted or best understood from all the commentaries I looked at before I sat down to watch this or to review this with you, is that there's this from John until now, being that John is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe, is that this idea of that, that's pushed back upon, not really even by the Roman Empire, much more by the religious officials, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in particular. Um, so even this whole concept of government and all of that and empire doesn't really even fit this picture. The only reason John has any beef with the empire is because he calls out Herod and Herod's not even looked at that great by the empire. If you look historically, Augustus doesn't even really like Herod that much. So that doesn't even fit. But the point is that the violence that he's talking about here are, are, is, is not comparative or not isn't even understood in the same way as what the scripture here is pointing out. So this is yet another example of a pastor using a text to then only benefit his own message and forgetting what the text says altogether. We see this all the time in these sermon reviews, and it's sickening and it's just aggravating because this is not what the text is communicating. This is not the point of what Matthew is trying to communicate in his gospel. Uh, and it, it, we'll talk, uh, hopefully this week, down below, you'll see a link where I look at this and I break this down myself. We don't, I don't want to take any more time. Obviously, we're already 45 minutes into this particular sermon review. To work, work through this text would just take up your time. This will be a whole different video. The point is, this isn't what Matthew's saying. <laughs> And Warnock is now applying modern day things that are occurring, specifically modern day events that are very fresh, especially at this point, because this is a year old uh, message, but even now in the minds of people and applying it on top of this text and making the text say, or at least connecting it in a way that is un, it's just inaccurate. It's not, it's not accurate at all. Not only that, there is the violence of poverty violence of prejudice and fear, but there's also the violence of poverty. Dr. King's last great push was the poor people's campaign. He was planning to take a whole lot of poor people to Washington and just shut the whole place down until America responded to its unfinished business with poverty. But as he was planning the poor people's campaign, some folks summoned him to Memphis so that he might stand up with the sanitation workers and with the garbage workers and they were there fighting for their humanity. You remember those iconic signs, I am a man. Well, the irony of this moment is that 
Martin Luther King Jr. went to Memphis to stand up for workers in 1968 who were standing up for the dignity of work and the dignity of workers. And here we are in 2020 and the minimum wage has less purchasing power in 2020 than the minimum wage had in 1968. That is a kind of violence that crushes on the humanity of poor people. And ironically, many of those who have embraced the ideology of anger and old resentments and hatreds that we've seen over the last few years, ironically, many of them suffer from the violence of poverty and somebody has convinced them that it's somebody else's fault. Kind of demagoguery and scapegoating of other marginalized people while, while not recognizing that your marginalization, your poverty is attached to the very thing that you're celebrating. Divide and conquer. There's a kind of violence of poverty. A failure to recognize that there is enough in God's world for all of God's children. There's no shortage of resources in God's world. There, there is no shortage of food in God's world. There's no poverty of possibility. So, so one of the things here that I think is important to look at, because he's going to keep going for a minute, and there's not a whole lot to really interject, because I've already interjected it. Like this, what does this have to do at all with the, the particular passage we're looking at? And the answer is nothing. Now, we could be interjecting in all of these things in regards to greed, in regards to poverty, um, in regards to prejudice. There are answers to all of those things found within the scriptures in how, how uh, as believers, we are commanded to live in a very generous way. We are commanded to live in ways that are not prejudiced. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, we have James, for example. James is a great book just, uh, just to cover kind of both of those in one fell swoop, but we obviously have a number of other scriptures that we could cover in which we are commanded to live in God-honoring ways to ensure that we are not only taking care of ourselves, our family, and the, the household of believers, that being the church and other Christians, but also uh, letting that kind of seep out into the world as well, or at least living in such a way that the world goes, you guys do this differently than we do. Uh, if you read a lot of the early um, uh, letters between uh, some of the Romans, the, gover the governors, and um, the Caesars, uh, for example, you have some indication that the Christians were known for uh, not being adulterous. They were known for being generous. They were known for a few other things that the Romans didn't understand, which was like communion. They thought that was cannibalism. Like There was definitely confusion, but there were things that, that they saw amongst the Christians that stood out that were not common amongst the other Romans. And um, we could be interjecting those here. Like if you want to talk about poverty, we could talk about how believers should be generous with, uh, with what we have. We have examples of that. Um, but like just saying like, oh, this is violence of poverty, the violence of prejudice, the all ties back to verse 12 being from the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. This is not at all what is being said here, but a lot of what is being read into it. And then this generalized sort of universalism over top of it that we are all children of God and we should all act in certain ways um, completely ignores the reality that we're sinners cut off from our creator and only through Jesus can be, we be reconciled to him. And only through Jesus can our heart and minds be changed in such a way in which we live in ways that are accordance to God's, uh, God's law. 
I mean, what he's really sort of implying here with his election and then the whole January 6th thing and then the whole this whole violence is poverty, violence is prejudice is that he's sort of indicating that you can legislate morality, which is what, you know, uh, the left always can, you know says that the right is trying to do uh, is the same thing he's basically saying now that you can legislate that in some sort of way or or at least, um, you know, compel people to do that. And that's not what we see in, in the scriptures. You're not going to compel anyone. You can, you as long as it's in their benefit in the long run, they may do it. Uh, but overall, uh, as soon as it starts becoming not in their benefit, they won't do it anymore. Uh, but that's not how the gospel works. The gospel changes our heart and minds um, in such a way that it's um, drastic. Let's keep going, though. There is a poverty of moral imagination. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent keep trying to take it by force. And the question this day is, will you stand on the key on the side of righteousness and justice and truth, or will you give in to the ugly demons of our nature? The violence, the prejudice and fear, the violence, Poverty, and then finally, there's a kind of violence, I must say, in our politics. There has been for too long now a kind of coarseness in the conversations we have with one another in the public square about the direction of the republic. A kind of demonizing of folk who don't share your point of view. The politics of personal destruction, we must raise the standard, we must try to embody. So really quick, I just thought of this, and I don't know how accurate this is, but where does that stand then in his example where he talked about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist did not use language toward Herod that would have been considered nice in the public square, but yet he's then he's now saying that we should use kind language toward each other in the public square, but yet use John as an example at the very beginning of the sermon about how John spoke truth to power in a way that got him in trouble. So like... I'm not like, there's a lot of opinions we could get into this. I'm just simply pointing as he's sort of working through this sermon, we've left the scripture totally behind at this point, but as he's working through the scripture, it's sort of, he's talking out both sides of his mouth then. So John can do it, but modern day politicians can't do it. Even, I mean, John wasn't a politician clearly, but so like, where does that line go though? Right. And what's the compelling force? What's the standard behind all of this? We haven't been given that just this, this idea that like, of generalized morality like what changes hearts and minds then like we haven't been given any of this especially we haven't been given it from the scripture in our speech the kind of world we want to see for our children all of our children and so here's the question this day do we want to become a more hateful fearful divided nation or build the beloved community my vote this morning is for beloved community the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and so they beheaded john they crucified Jesus, they killed Viola Luiso, they killed Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, they killed Martin Luther King Jr. on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. The violence in this world is real, don't... So, do you see, he just made a sweeping comparison amongst all of those people. Um, I think to make a, a string here of this idea of violence um, is, is evident, but like... <laughs> The reason John was killed was a totally different reason than Jesus was killed. 
uh, it was a different, totally different reason than these other people were, were killed, right? So it's like you making generalized sweeping generalizations is problematic for everyone, right? We all just need to recognize that. Um, it's very interesting that you put all those people in the same bucket. Don't be dishonest about that yet. Violence does not have the last word. God is still up to something in this world. And so don't give in to cynicism. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to hatred. Don't give in to bigotry. Don't give in to xenophobia because violence will never have the last word. Yes, John spoke up and they beheaded John. But his that is not why John was beheaded. His voice crying out in the wilderness had already prepared the way of the Lord by the power of his moral voice. He had already paved a highway in the desert for our God. They crucified Jesus in order to crush his movement, but he got off the cross and got in, here in our hearts. That's why nobody... So God, Jesus got off the cross and into our hearts. He does not mention resurrection. And I just want to point that out. That's vital. I don't know what what uh Raphael warnock believes about the resurrection but he doesn't mention it which is important also they did not kill like the romans didn't kill jesus to stop his movement um they were compelled Pilate especially was compelled because Pilate historically was a pretty weak um governor and so Pilate is persuaded by the religious re, uh, Jewish religious rulers to crucify him. Um, and so he does. And there is a, there is some politics there, but has nothing to do with Jesus in regards to the political part. It's very much the religious rulers um, using, using political language toward Pilate in which then propels Pilate to consider crucifying Jesus, which if you read the gospels again, he doesn't want to, but he eventually gives them the choice and they pick Jesus. So it's not even like the Romans were like, we need to get rid of this movement. They could have cared less. Like Jesus was so low on the priorities of what they were concerned about historically of Jewish uprisings. The only reason Jesus dies on the cross is because Pilate's a pretty weak ruler. Also, obviously God's providence throughout time. But if you're talking about specifically like the, the people God used to do this, um, you have religious leaders that don't like what Jesus is saying because it affects their standing. They persuade a pretty weak uh, Roman official to give them what they want because they don't have the power to crucify anyone or to take their life. So they have to go through the Roman government. They get that passed, but it's not like, like this whole generalization that Jesus, they, they killed Jesus to stop his movement is, is wrong. Sings songs to Caesar, but all over the world right now in churches and cathedrals from the East to the West, from the North and the South in diverse languages and tribes, all are singing, all hail the power of Jesus name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. They murdered Martin King. They tried to destroy his movement, but the other night, the people of Georgia. So I just want to, he keeps making this comparison. Like John the Baptist, Jesus, Martin Luther King. Um, like these are not people that fit in the same bucket. All right. These are not people that started movements and then were killed because of these movements. Um, John, again, was beheaded because he was basically uh, put between a rock and a hard place. And he goes ahead and does it, even though he knows that the people won't like it. Um, again, Herod, not a 
vicious, but not very, you know, very swayed by the people. Uh, Jesus, again, we just discussed, you know, his death. Uh, then we're moving to Martin Luther King. Like these are not comparable is all I'm saying. And when you do that, you really belittle the scripture and what it's communicating in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, even though Warnock has not mentioned and will not mention in this sermon, Jesus's resurrection. He has talked about uh, declaring him Lord, and he has called Jesus God. Um, he has not mentioned the resurrection, which is a key point in Christian doctrine. Red, yellow, brown, black, and white stood up and said, now is the time to send the pastor from his church and a young Jewish man to represent a state in the deep south. God is up to something in the world. And so I'm not about to give up. I'm not about to give in. I'm not about to throw. One more thing too, I guess since we're already here, like everybody I think needs to understand that God is going to do what God is going to do. So whether it is an election of a red candidate or a blue candidate, it doesn't mean God is in, you know, working and like now he's at work and he wasn't before. God is going to do what God is going to do regardless. One's election or non-election it is meaningless because God is going to do what he's going to do anyway. Does he use people to then further his plan. We've already talked about that with Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders. Yes, he is going to work through people, but it's probably not going to look like you think it's going to look. So like declaring God working through situations because it went your way or God is you know, punishing because it didn't go your way. Like I just be very careful about reading into things that way, because if you look historically back, the things that go like sideways for them Sometimes or is God actually doing something they didn't expect? And sometimes them getting what they think they wanted is actually not like it's God using something to punish them. So don't assume that one thing automatically equals what you assume it means. Throw in the towel. I'm, I'm not about to allow those who have short-sighted vision to win the day. That's why I fight for justice. Every now and then, God gives us a glimpse of what is possible. That's why I fight for truth. I still believe that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I still believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love shall have the last word, as Dr. King said. In reality, I still believe that right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. I still believe that every valley shall be exalted and every mountain shall be made low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I still believe that harder yet may be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness for a while may reign and Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there is a God rules above. The hand of mercy and a heart of love. And if I'm right, God will fight my battles. And we shall all be free. Someday, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through Jesus Christ, our liberator and our Lord. My beloved, keep the faith. Can't you see it through the darkness, through all that we've been through this year? The cloud that still sits over our life with this pandemic. Every now and then God just allows God's light to just pierce the cloud in order to tell his children 
keep on keeping on. And so we open wide this day the doors of the church. Okay, so he's going to stop. This is like his ending thing. So we'll just, we'll stop there. Because um, he moves into, like, you can watch it if you want. We stopped at uh, minute 30 minutes and 57 seconds. There's six minutes left. Uh, basically, it's a um, uh, repeated prayer, join the church. There's no mention, again, of, of Jesus' resurrection or the need to repent of sin. That's not there. So let's go ahead and work through um, the three things that we always look at. So we always look at, did they read the text? Did they exegete the scriptures in context and culture? And did they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? So the first thing is, did he read the text? He did read the text for sure. We did have Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 7 through 11 read. And when we read those, uh, you can see that there were some things there that, um, that he focused in on particularly. Um, the first thing that he really, I mean, his whole sermon was basically on chapter 12. We didn't really focus on a whole lot other than that. He did sort of work up to this idea of, you know, uh, why did you come out? Was it, you know, to see this, you know, someone dressed nice or a prophet? And he does get to the whole idea that it was a prophet. Um, but then he really focuses in on verse 12 and basically just stays on verse 12. Doesn't, doesn't move off of verse 12 and then reads into verse 12 current events um, onto them. Again, elections, January 6th, that sort of thing, onto the text, which, as I said repeatedly, have nothing to do with this text at all. Lastly, did he preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, no. Like, he does talk, I, I want to give him credit where credit is due in regards to, he does talk about Jesus as as Lord. Uh, he mentions Jesus as liberator a couple of times. Again, that comes from probably the theological framework that he's working out of. But he doesn't mention Jesus is Savior. He doesn't really, he never talks about sin. He doesn't talk about repentance. It's very much this generalized, um, if you do the good things and follow God and God's way, then there is justice for you. And there's this, this sort of him being your God, because we're all children of God. Like he sort of has this idea that everyone's a child of God. If, if therefore you follow what God has said, even in like small ways, then you are his, I guess. It doesn't, again, there's no really reconciliation that he talks about. There's no sin that needs repented of um, or turned from. There's no Jesus has resurrected from the dead in defeat of sin and death that then makes that whole thing possible. So no, he does not preach the gospel uh, in this message. Again, this is just one message. So going back through, does he read the text? Yes. Does he uh, exegete the text? No, he does not. And third, does he preach the gospel? No, he does not. Here, here's the thing I think in this sermon that I would point out. I, did, I didn't really know what to expect going into this sermon, but what I came out the other end with is that he's basically, you know, a cookie cutter, what you would expect a pastor, I mean, in reality. He read the text, he read into the text, he made the text about us and our modern day events. There you go. I mean, it's not any better or worse than your your general generic church pastor that just is very um, pragmatic uh, bringing events in. It's nothing. There's no power here, right? That's what I, I was trying to point out throughout this sermon. Like, what is the standard then for this right and wrong? Uh, what is the compelling factor in which um, you are to do these good things? Is it just, I mean, is it just a base morality? I mean, you, that can be, 
your your reasoning. But where does that base morality come from then? Is it humanistic or is it based within scripture? It's going to come from somewhere. I don't, I mean, I just want you to tell me where it comes from. Um, but what he's basically, there's no standard in which he's, there's an assumed standard that all quote unquote children of God have that you should abide by, um, according to him. So I don't know that that's the, there's no standard for which you're compelled to do anything that he's talking about. And then he reads into verse 12, this violence that isn't actually within what Matthew's trying to communicate here and just butchers the passage. So I, <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful. I think, uh, I maybe, I think I was expecting a little bit more, um, just because of like how high profile he is. And then I'm sort of disappointed on the other end that it was just like this generic basic, what I would expect, unfortunately, from most preaching today, which there was no gospel power. There was no um, actual digging into the text and explaining it. Um, there's so much, like, I can't explain to you guys. Uh, eventually, we're going to have this series out on, on the channel. It's just taking forever to do. But there's so much history that is behind what is happening in the Gospels that when you understand that history and know what's going on, like it's near impossible for somebody to read something onto this because you know that's not what's actually happening in this text. Again, there'll be a link in the description below. I want to work through this passage in particular uh, by itself. You can check that out if you'd like. Anyway, that being said, guys, hopefully this was helpful. If it was, make sure you leave a like. Make sure you comment if you thought maybe I missed something, maybe I misrepresented him, or maybe you liked it. And then make sure you share it because all of those things help... Uh, help these videos get out to more people. Guys, thank you for following, liking, all the cool things. I'll talk to you next time.